Well, good morning. Ooh, hot mic. Uh, take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, Happy New Year. And uh, we look forward to seeing what God has for us in the New Year's at church and in our lives as individuals. Last, If you're new here, by the way, today, welcome. And it's a good day to be here because we're starting a new series, a new sermon series. And uh, last week we uh, ended uh, the year uh, looking at what it means to be an all-in, radically devoted disciple of Jesus. And so I thought we would spend uh, the first part of this year for several weeks in a book that will help us understand what that looks like. Uh, And James, uh, the book of James certainly helps us understand what that looks like. And he's really after helping us understand what authentic faith looks like. Authentic saving faith. What does it look like? It's an active faith. It's clear. It's noticeable. Uh, It comes out in every area of our life. And so uh, that's what James is going to get Um, help us with uh, in in his book as we walk through it. So a short introduction, stand with your Bibles open, and we'll begin to read in verse 1. What does it look like? What does active, authentic authentic faith look like? Um, Specifically, James is going to show us what it looks like in the area of trials this morning. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Uh, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, I pray that you would illuminate our minds this morning. Lord, we are thankful for a new year. It reminds us, Lord, of, the, of your grace and your mercies that are new every day. And Lord, I am thankful, Lord, for an opportunity to be in your word uh, with our church family. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would, uh, again, uh, just illuminate our minds with your truth, that your Holy Spirit would take your truth and plant it in our hearts or bend our wills where we're stubborn, we can often wander. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go into this new year, Lord, you give us a, just a good, fresh understanding in this area of our life, what it looks like to be radically devoted to you. Lord, I can't think of a, a better New Year's resolution, Lord, than to commit our lives to be more conformed to the image of your Son. So I pray that that would be uh, our hearts this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to set out on that path for this year. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to begin in verse 1. Look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So we see right there the the name of the author of this book, and his name is James. There's four guys named James in the New Testament. Two of them are apostles. One of them is the father of one of those apostles, and one of them is the half-brother of Jesus. And that's the author of this book, we believe. 
James would go on. He goes on to become uh, one of the pillars of the early church. He's right there with Paul and Peter, and he uh, becomes the pastor in Jerusalem. He's a, an influential leader in the early church. He's a, a very uh, effective leader, very well-known leader, and very devoted in his relationship with Jesus Christ. But that wasn't always the case. All right, there was a time when James doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. If anyone has siblings, you maybe can understand uh, why he'd maybe struggle with that a little bit. When your brother starts telling people that they're God, it may be hard. It may be take you a little bit to catch up with that. All right, uh, so as well behaved as Jesus probably was as a child, it's still hard to believe that your brother, as well behaved as they may be, is God when he starts telling people that he's God. I mean, just think about how he probably had to work through some feelings too, right? It had to be difficult to live in the same house as. Jesus, right? He, as your brother, like, can you imagine, just think about how maybe hard, how hard it is maybe for you to live in the shadow if you're a younger sibling of an older sibling, right? Can you imagine being Jesus' younger sibling, right? Having to deal with that, right? Mom and dad, hey, young Tim, come in here, Tim. Why can't you just be more like Jesus? Like seriously, why can't you just live your life more like your older brother, Jesus? That had to be difficult at times. And James doubted uh, his uh, a lot of Jesus' family, we think most of them doubted. In fact, there's a time in Mark 3 where they actually go and try to pull Jesus away from the crowds. Like, sorry, our brother's a little crazy. He keeps talking about he's God. Let's, we need to go talk to him. He's gone off the deep end a little bit. And if you watched, if you were the brother of a man who was telling people he was the son of God, you would probably struggle and you would doubt as well. But then if you watched that brother die and rise again... Then like James, you would probably be going, I may need to rethink this. And after his resurrection, Jesus pursues James. James, who wasn't with Jesus for those three years of his earthly ministry. He chose not to go. He had an opportunity to go to seminary with the Savior. And he chose to go another direction. He chose to not believe the claims that his brother was making. Jesus. And yet Jesus, after he raises from the dead, pursues James, who rejected him. And James collides with Jesus, encounters the Savior, collides with the gospel, and goes all in. He becomes a leader in the church, in the early church. He becomes an extremely passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Extremely passionate specifically about living an out loud an out loud, distortion-free, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk kind of life for Jesus. So much so that some enemies of the gospel, as he is serving as the pastor in the church of Jerusalem, completely devoted to Jesus, on mission for Jesus, some enemies of the gospel take him to the top of the temple, as church history tells us, and are basically like, hey, you've got a lot of influence in Christianity right now, James, and a lot of people are following Jesus. We need you to tell people to stop following Jesus. You know what James does, as history tells us, at the top of that temple, he shouts down about how the Son of God is going to come back in the clouds of heaven. And so they throw him off the temple. And he falls to the ground, but the fall doesn't kill him at first. And he, and he rolls over and gets up onto his knees and on mangled legs begins to pray out loud for the forgiveness of his enemies like Jesus did. And so they stone him and they beat him to death. And he literally dies practicing what he spends his life preaching. He dies practicing what he preaches in this letter. And what is that? That authentic faith fleshes itself out in clear, active, undeniable, noticeable ways. Authentic faith gets up into all areas of your everyday life. And this book covers a lot of different subjects. And I love how James just jumps right into the first subject. Look at how he does it. Short intro. Hi, I'm James. Not a whole lot of fluffy, flowery introduction like Paul. You know, Paul gives these long introductions. He's like, hi, I'm James. Let's talk about some trials in your life. This letter is 
written not to one church, like it's an epistle. It's written to Christians and written to the church, but not written to one specific church, like a lot of the epistles that Paul writes are, you know, like Romans or Ephesians, written to people living in a specific place. It says this letter is to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And this helps us understand why he's making a beeline to talk about trials. The 12 tribes of dispersion is describing the people who, if you remember in Acts, us studying how Saul, before he became Paul, was a persecutor of the church. And the persecution that he was inflicting in Jerusalem was causing people, pushing people out, causing them to scatter and to run from that persecution, which we know God was using to get people to do what he called them to do in the first place. And that was to scatter, to get the salt out of the salt shaker. And so people have scattered. They're outside of Israel. And that's when it says 12 tribes of the dispersion, it's, it's describing these Jewish Christians who are outside of Israel, seeking to live out their faith, but continuing to encounter trials, continuing to suffer, but they're not suffering well. The trials are revealing weak faith. And so James hears about this and he addresses this right out of the gate. And you know what? This is not hard for us to apply to our lives because we're in our own dispersion. This world's not our home. Christians are dispersed all throughout this world, and we are some of those Christians. This world's not our home. We're going to encounter the brokenness of the world. We're going to encounter trials, as we'll see this morning. And what James gives them as some key ingredients to walk through suffering and walk through trials faithfully continue to be the same ingredients we need in our life. And here they are, three things that you need to do in order to walk through a trial faithfully. And I'll give them to you up front. They come right out of the passage. Point one, count it all joy. Ask for wisdom and one day receive a crown. Count it all joy. Ask for wisdom and receive a crown. Number one, count it all joy. So there's 108 verses in this small book and over 60 imperatives. It's full of commands. James is, listen, he's he's all about, hey, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Authentic faith is active. It's loud. It's clear. And in verse two, he says this. Here's the first imperative of the entire book. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. He's talking to believers. When you meet trials of various kinds. Now, the first thing to circle to make note of in your Bible is the word uh, when. Notice he doesn't say if you meet trials. He says when. Making the point, trials and tribulations and troubles in life are inevitable. All right, it's been said a lot. And I'm gonna say it again because it's true. You're You're either coming out of a trial right now You're either in the middle of the trial or buckle up. You're about to go into a trial, right? Happy New Year. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? But it's just true. I wish it wasn't true. And we kind of live in a way that we kind of think the next season of our life may be the time, may be the season that I'll be able to to, to get some smooth sailing in my life. Don't we always kind of think that way, right? When we're in grade school, we think, man, if I could just get to middle school. If I could just get to middle school, my problem, I, I think my, I, I'll finally experience maybe somewhat of a problem-free life. Yeah, okay. If I can just get to high school, if I can just own my own car and get a little freedom and be able to, you know, hang out with my friends a little bit more, have a little freedom in my life, then I'd be happy. Not so fast, right? Or then, and then we get to the place of, I could just get out of my parents' house. Man, that's my problem. That, 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 I'm in this trial. If I could just get out of my parents' house, my trials would be over. Then you move out of your parents' house and you're like, maybe it wasn't so bad at my parents' house. You get into college and you're like, if I could just graduate and get into that career, Jesus, help me. Just, I'm tired of college. If I could just get out of college and get me a job, then my problems will be over. And then you graduate and then it's, if I, can, I need to find the right job. If I can find the right job with the right pay and the right location, then I can be happy. And then you get the job, maybe the very job that you prayed for, but then you're not happy with that job. And you think the next job, if I can just get that job, then I'd live a problem-free life. That'll solve everything. 
Or you're single and you think, man, if I, my, what I would solve on my, I just need to get married. That would smooth out everything in my life. <laughs> hey, marriage is a wonderful thing, but it's not a trial free thing. Now, don't amen that too eagerly if you're sitting next to your spouse this morning. I'm just kidding. Do you get married and then it's, then it, what is it? I mean, if I can just get a proof for this loan for my dream house, then, then we, then we'd make it. Then we finally find some happiness. Or if we could have kids. I mean, if I could have, if we could have kids, then our trials will be over. Our, our tribulations would come to an end. That's a, you get a whole new fresh batch set of trials when you have kids. And your kids get older, man. If I could just, if I could just now just get the kids, if I could just get the kids out of the house. And then you know what happens? You watch your kids sail off into adulthood and you're in the empty nest. And then they begin to make, you weren't prepared for this, but they begin to make bad decisions that you begin to carry on your shoulders. Because you never stop being their mama, you never stop being their daddy. And you begin to carry some secondary suffering on you that you weren't expecting to carry. Then you think, if I could just retire, then I'd be happy. Then, you know, I, 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 could, I could finally sail. You know, I, I finally have deserved the right to, to experience a little bit of problem-free life. And you get older and, and you, you, didn't, you didn't realize this, it hit you. You, start, you. you retire and you begin to start thinking over your life about things you wish you'd have done differently. And the, and the whole question of purpose and my purpose in this world begins to hit you. And maybe loneliness sets in and you deal with other issues of pain and the aches and the health issues that are part of getting older. Losing friends and family members becomes sadly a familiar experience for you. You know, I'm just trying to make the point that there's no season that we experience in this life, no time in your time in this life that you're not going to experience trials. It's the world we live in. It's the life we live. That's what James is saying. Trials are inevitable. He says they vary the various kinds, physical trials, financial trials, family trials, emotional trials. We're all going to deal with our fair share of trials, even Christians. You need to continuously be reminded of this. You have some other preacher or teacher or book or somebody come along. Say, you come to Jesus, you leave all your troubles behind you. Listen, if they're talking about anything other than the burden and the trouble of carrying your sin with you forward, they're, they're lying to you. They haven't read James. They haven't listened to Jesus. John 16, in the world. What did Jesus say? Not you might. He said, you will have tribulation. Job 5, 7, this is what Job said. He dealt with some trials. He said, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We lit some sparklers Friday night. Along, uh, the rest of our neighborhood decided to have a Civil War reenactment. <laughs> we just lit sparklers. And what Job said, I you know, looked at my sparkler and what he said is still true. Sparks fly upward. Which means the other half of that's true. Trials are inevitable. Trouble is inevitable. He says, when you meet trials, that word meet is another important word to pay attention to. Notice he says, he says, when you meet, he doesn't say when you make trials. He doesn't say when you create trials. That's next week. We're going to look at that next week. Sometimes we're in trials of our own making because of sinful choices. He's not talking about that right here. He's talking about those trials that show up into your life unexpected, those uninvited, unwelcome visitors who just barge up into your life like some cousin Eddie holiday relative visitor who decides they're going to come up into your life and settle down and they don't leave and they make your life miserable. And there's nothing you can do about it. James is saying you're going to have trials even after you come to Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't want to share this this morning. You know, it's, it's not the most you know, positive and encouraging K-Love news, but it's true. You're going to face trials. I, I don't know what this year holds for us. I hope it's a better year than the last two years. 
But I do know this, we're going to continue to, to, to face trouble. Tribulations, you're either in it, you're either moving into it, you're either just coming out of it. And you're going to face some of your speed bump type of trials this year. Some of you are going to face some fender bender type trials this year. Some of us in this room are going to face catastrophic head-on collision trials this year in your life. That's not a question. The question is, is how will you walk faithfully through it? How will you walk faithfully through it? And James has given us the key right here by counting it all joy when we meet it. By counting it all joy when we meet them. That's a counterculture, that's a counterintuitive way to respond. Why the world says get bitter in the trial. The world says, hey, the normal way is to get envious in the trial, to look what other people have and to compare your life to them and it just creates bitterness in you. Hey, the world says throw a pity party. The world says turn to functional saviors, turn to to drugs, turn to, to alcohol, turn to substances, turn to promiscuity and entertainment, things that can ease your pain in the middle of the trial to try to escape it. The world says fall into despair, which is like an absence of joy. And I believe that's the reason why James is making a beeline to this, because he's sensing that some people are falling into despair as they're seeking to walk out their faith in this world, uh, running into trials. And what James is saying is, look at me, look at never, never lose sight of this. He's saying, as a believer, it is possible for you to maintain joy in trials. And, And notice what he's not saying here. He's not saying count the trial as a joy. Like if you, if you find pain, joy, in the, something's wrong with us, right? He doesn't say enjoy the trials. Like lift your hands like, woohoo, I'm on a roller It's like you're on a roller coaster. Oh, the trial, this is fun. No, he's encouraging us to, what is he encouraging us? Count and consider it all joy about what God's doing in your life in the trial. The joy comes from knowing that God is up to something big in our lives when we're walking through trials. And that's really the... The, the, the key ingredient, the thing that, that James is focused on here. But when you step back and look at the whole of Scripture, and, and I hope you lean in to listen to, and listen to this. When you look at the whole of Scripture, I believe, as I've studied this week, this subject, that there's really three key things that if your heart will be convinced of these, you'll be able to walk faithfully through any trial with the help of the Holy Spirit. If your heart is convinced of these three things, you'll be able to walk through any trial and you'll be able to count it joy. Understanding, number one, it's three, three areas. Your spiritual identity, eschatological victory, and transformational activity. I'm going to break those down real quick. If you're convinced of your spiritual identity, eschatological victory, and transformational activity happening in your life right now, you can live out this command that James has given you right here to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Spiritual identity. If you're convinced of your spiritual identity in Christ Jesus, listen, you understand you have joy because of your spiritual identity. Joy is spiritual. My joy is not based in my circumstances. It's spiritual. It's through my union with Jesus, a union that's untouched by the trials of this world. Any trial in this world, if I'm in Christ Jesus, no trial can undo my position and my place in the family of God. Spiritual identity. Number two, eschatological victory. There's a victory coming in the future. All right, so eschatological, what does that mean? I'm just going to pretend like I understand what's going on right here, like, like I did along the way when I heard that word for the first time. Eschatological, it's just a fancy theological word that's kind of referring to the end times, referring to the resurrection of the dead, referring to Jesus coming back. All right, so the belief in what, what we, we need to see life kind of from the future looking back because we understand that there's going to be a day where the trials in this life are going to end. 
Here's the rest of what Jesus says in John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. The world's broken. The world's fractured. There's trials in it. Your life's going to feel miserable at times. There's an enemy at it who wants you to feel miserable and wants you to live without hope. But we're not going to live without hope because we understand an eschatological victory in the future that we're moving towards a day just ahead when God's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. No more sorrow, no more death, no more sickness, no more trials. Praise God for that. That's a well of joy from which your weary soul this morning can draw some joy. Spiritual identity, eschatological victory. And this is where really where James focuses his attention, transformational activity. What he's saying is you can experience joy by, yes, knowing your spiritual identity and place in Christ, by looking forward to a day when all the trials will end, but you can experience joy in knowing that God is using this trial right now in your life to do something. Verse 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith, that's the trial. That's what the trial is. Produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What is James saying right here? He's saying that God uses trials in our life. When we meet trials of various kinds, every one of those trials he's using as we persevere through those to turn us into a gritty, complete, Christ-like disciple. Now, here's the rub, all right? If I told everybody, hey, raise your hand. Who wants to be more like, just rhetorical, don't do it. Uh, but who, who in here wants to become more like Christ this year and you want to stand at the end of 2022 looking more like Christ than you did when you entered into this year? Hands would just go up. Put your hands down. Now, how many of you want to embrace the truth with all of your heart that it's going to take some trials this year for you to get there? We don't like that. We love the idea of becoming more like Christ. We don't like the idea that the vehicle for that to happen, the tool that God often uses for that to happen is trials, is suffering, is pain. We don't like that. We like comfort. We like the rest of the world are very tempted and often bend down our knee, especially in America, to one of the biggest false gods, and that's the God of comfort. We love comfort. Nothing wrong with liking comfort. Who doesn't want to be comfortable, right? But we want every day to be a problem-free day, forgetting that we're walking through a a broken world, forgetting that, yes, Jesus following him is the best life, but it's not the easiest life. You're still going to run into trials. You're still going to run into problems. We want every day to be a day by the pool. Days by the pool are nice, maybe on a float, maybe some some music playing in the background, a little breeze flowing through the air, some steaks cooking on the grill. Are you there with me? Praise God for those days. But listen, God does not mature us on pool days. Some of the greatest seasons of growth and some of those who walked with the Lord in here for a while, I'll tell you this. Some of the seasons that you feel your relationship with God is at the most intimate level won't be the days of laying out by the pool when all feels right with the world. It will happen in seasons of suffering and seasons of sorrow and seasons of trial and seasons of tribulation. That's the very reason why James says you can count it joy when you're walking through it. Because you trust that there's transformational activity happening. Because we stand on the promise that the fruit of this trial, if I persevere, will be good and will turn me into a more steadfast, well-rounded, complete disciple. So I'm just inviting you here at the beginning of a brand new year, as we move into a new year to make a decision that, hey, I may be in a trial right now, so this is going to be applied to my life right now, but I know I may be moving into a trial in the future. I know that's that's definitely going to happen this year at some point. 
some various trial of some various kind. I'm going to be walking through a trial. So I'm going to make a, a decision right now to stand on the promise that God is at work in my trials, no matter what I face. And I'm going to persevere. I'm going to keep moving through the fire. I'm going to keep coming to church. I'm going to keep reading my Bible, understanding that through the trial, through the pain, as I persevere, he's strengthening spiritual muscles in me. I'm going to keep drawing close to Jesus. I'm going to let my trials drive me to the sufficiency of Christ. I'm going to, I'm going to keep trusting in his promises, standing on his promises, even when it's hard, even when it's confusing. Why? Because I know, I believe deep down with a heart of faith that he's at work. Knowing that gives me the supernatural ability and capacity in Christ to have tears flowing down my face in the middle of a trial and yet to smile. Knowing that God is at work. I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. Now, and we can count it all joy. Now, knowing God is at work fuels us to persevere, but it doesn't necessarily, I don't know how much it helps us navigate in those trials in a way that's faithful. And that's why James says next, he says, don't just count it all joy, ask for wisdom. James says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, by the way, if any of you lacks wisdom, who is that? That's everybody. All right, make a note there. This is me. This applies to all of us. Let him ask God. So in our trials, we're encouraged to pray for wisdom. But here's what we do often. Here's the first request we run to God with, right? It's, it's, here it is. When we're in a trial, when things are, you know, are, are messy, when, when things are difficult, when things are challenging, what do we do? We run to God. This is our first request. God, in your infinite power and wisdom, just make it go away. Please just remove it from my life. Nothing wrong with praying that. I just think when you understand the purpose of trials, it maybe is a better request initially and really an indication that you're seeking wisdom It's not going to God saying, God, help me out of this trial. But my first prayer as a maturing disciple is, God, I'm in this trial. It's not God, get me out of this trial. It's God, help me to get what I need out of this trial. Help me to understand why I'm in this in the first place. How can I grow from this? God, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to teach me here? Sometimes sometimes we forget. Not always the case, but there's times in our life where God will remove a trial once we learn our lesson that he's trying to teach us in the trial. There's times where God's trying to teach us a lesson and we're not learning the lesson. He'll take us right back into the school of suffering. Some of us have repeated the second grade five times. And so we have to begin to have the, the, the humility to go, hold on a second, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? Help me to be humble. Help me to be teachable. And then also seeking his wisdom to navigate the trial faithfully. God, help me to navigate this faithfully. Because there's going to be times where you, what do you do when you don't know what to do? We run into those moments. You're here this morning. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial. Like, I'm in a place. That's me. I don't know what to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And what James is saying, never forget you have a heavenly father that you can approach at any time who has some wisdom for you this morning. And I love the picture that James gives right here. Don't you love it? Such a good, refreshing reminder for us. He says, he's a God, run to God who is an approachable God. He's a personal God and he's a generous God. If you need wisdom, look at what it says. Let him ask God who gives generously. We serve a God and have a relationship with a God through Christ whose nature is to give. You're never more like God than when you have a giving spirit. That's his nature. Every other, in every other religion other than Christianity, God is presented as a taker. 
Christianity is unique in that we serve a true and living God who is a giver for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save us. John three sixteen. He's a giving God. If you run your eyes down to verse 17 in chapter one of James, what does it say? Every good, this is God, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights. Here it is in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Is that not powerfully refreshing for those of us who are aware of how ever changing this world is? That we serve a God who doesn't change. Do I need to spend time convincing us this morning that we live in a world that changes? Many things in this life change. God does not. He's a generous giver of his, of his grace and his mercy and his wisdom on Monday. What is he like on Tuesday? He's a generous giver of his wisdom and his grace on Tuesday. What about Wednesday? He's a generous giver of his wisdom and his grace and his mercy and his truth on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, back in the office on Sunday, shelling out his gener- generously shelling out his wisdom and his grace for his children as they seek it. Things change. We live in a world where things change. So my daughter got a, a vinyl uh, record player um, for Christmas, right? So th- I guess those have not gone out of style. Those are back in style now. And some of you will remember when that was your only option, Right? That was the best option. We'll say it that way. And then some of you will remember what came next. Eight tracks, I believe, right? That was before my time. I think it was short-lived, and then it moved on to cassette tapes. I remember cassette tapes. So I'm old enough to remember that, actually having like a boom box in my room with a cassette tape. And then, oh, then, then it got really fancy and they had the little, you know, I forget what you call it, Walkman, right? You put the cassette tape in there and you can kind of walk around with your headphones. And then I got into middle school and they came out with a disc man. Oh my goodness, for Christmas one year, I got a disc man. I was a big man on campus. I had a little hold of that thing, would hold on to my side. You had, you, you had to be careful that you couldn't run with it, right? You had to walk like heel to toe or it would skip. And now you can have, we've developed since then, right? Now you can have thousands of songs on your device. I was trying to explain to my kids um, recently how in, in middle school, it's, it's hard for kids that have never known a world without cell phones to understand we existed in a world without cell phones. And so I remember in middle school, that was still before cell phones came for me later in high school. I mean, you could have one before then, but it was like carrying around a cinder block and you had to take out a loan to afford one. But I remember it's like, they were like, what do you do? What did you do? What, well, you know, you could get a beeper. My parents didn't let me have a beeper. Remember those? Cool kids had beepers. And my, my parents would just kind of throw you some change and be like, going to the mall, if you need to call me, call me on a payphone. Well, what's a payphone, right? Things change. Hey, some of you will remember, we're, we're used to streaming services and, and all the different video services that just come magically, kind of just the movies float into our house. Amazing technology. You'll remember a time back when you had to get in your horse and buggy and go down the road to an ancient establishment called Blockbuster. Do you remember that? And you kind of wander around. For an hour, looking at the back of VHS tapes, trying to pick the best video, and you rented it, and then you had to remember to be kind and rewind when you brought it back. Hey, things change. Technology changes. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And some of your hearts need to hear that this morning. In an ever-changing world, we serve an ever-changing God who's generous and who is never unavailable to help us and to give us wisdom. question is, do you believe that? Does your prayer life testify to the truth that you believe that? Because look at verse six, or you describe like he describes a man in verse six, but let him ask 
in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. That word doubt right there carries the idea of pausing or wavering. This is someone who doubts the character of God, not sure if they can trust him. This is someone with divided loyalties. Someone who goes to God maybe and looks for answers on Sunday, but there they are on Monday and Tuesday looking for answers out and looking for wisdom out in the world. And then kind of back on a Wednesday or Thursday to check out what God has to say. I'm not sure if that's exactly what I need. So I'm going to go look for wisdom in some other places and I may come back and give God a shot later on. That's a double-minded person doubting the good and generous nature of God. And that person, he's saying, should never expect to hear anything from God. God gives wisdom to those who seek him in faith. That's the point he's making here. James is saying you can trust his character and you better trust his character if you're going to grow as a praying disciple or you're going to keep like a wave of the sea being driven and tossed around by the wind. You will remain spiritually unstable. Do you feel spiritually unstable this morning? That might describe your life and you will stay that way and your life will be chaotic until it starts getting tied down in prayer with a heart that draws near to God and believes he's always good and gives generously to his kids wisdom. So let's get in his presence this year. Let's draw close to him. Now, in verses 9 through 11, you may read that and go, that feels random. I'm not sure how that fits in to this passage. However, I believe that verses 9 through 11 is still to be understood in the context of trials and even in the context of understanding this idea of going to God for wisdom. Because the wisdom of the world is going to tell people to do something here. Namely, you know, it's running to the, the riches of this world to solve your problems. But James has something to say about that. In verse 9, he says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So what is James doing? He's calling the, the, the poor Christian who's dealing with trials away from thinking that money will solve his problems. Is that not the way we think at times? Especially if our trials are wrapped up in money and in things and in possessions. We think that, that money and earthly treasure is what can solve our problems and solve uh, the issues of our trials. And he's saying, don't do that. He's saying, boast in your position in Christ. He's telling both of them. He's saying to the wealthy man, kind of the same thing. Don't lean on your money to solve your problems. Boast in your position in Christ. To the poor man, he says it this way. Boast in your exaltation. What he's saying there is he's saying, don't don't look at earthly treasure as that which will solve your issues. Look past that to your heavenly treasure. You're a co-heir with Christ. You own it. He owns everything. Which means if you have nothing, you ain't got two pennies to rub together in this world. You got everything in Christ. And you got to be able to see life from that perspective. Boast in your exaltation. But then to the rich man, he says it differently. He says, boast in your humiliation. Why does he say it that way? And he also spends a lot more time here talking to the rich man. Right? He's talking to rich people who have problems. Maybe you're like, ah, yeah, I would rather have those problems than the poor people problems. I mean, do we get to pick? I'll t- it can't be that hard to be a rich person. I'll take his problems over the poor people problems, right? I mean, we think that way. I heard a comedian say, man, I hear all these rich people say, money can't buy you happiness. We know, yeah, but I know it can buy you a jet ski. And I've never seen a sad person on a jet ski. <laughs> but we think that way. And what James is saying is you have to look past that and boast in your humiliation. And the reason he words it that way is because in that culture, in the Roman world, in the Jewish world, if your ultimate identity and position in Christ was a, 
if your ultimate identity was your position in Christ and among in, in kind of your, your relationship among God's people, that was seen as a humiliating position to be in from the world's perspective. They thought you were wasting your life. You were a nobody in that culture. And yet James is saying, look here, you got a lot. Boast in that. Don't boast in your earthly possessions. Don't get attached to the wealth of this earth. Don't get attached to your social status. Don't put your confidence in any of that. It won't last forever. It won't solve your problems. It's like the grass and the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. No, and this speaks to all of us. This covers the spectrum, socioeconomically speaking. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, what your trials look like, don't look at earthly treasure as something that you think can solve your issues. Glory in the treasure of knowing Jesus. Glory in the treasure of knowing him, understanding that it's through him and the blood of Christ that you have the privilege to approach a heavenly father who gives generously wisdom to his kids. Hey, and that's much infinitely more valuable than something you're going to find in a pile of earthly treasure. So as we seek wisdom, as we count it all joy, when we meet trials, I love this. Here's the last point. As we persevere through trials, here's what we look forward to one day, receiving a crown. Receiving a crown. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life. Now, I believe we're going to receive rewards in heaven for those who faithfully run the race on this earth. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's going to be rewards that are going to be passed out. I'm not sure what that looks like. But but what we do know is it's not going to be like an Olympic award ceremony where if you get a bronze medal, you know, you're going to feel inferior to the person who has a gold medal. We're not really sure about what all that looks like. We do know this. Revelation 4 says all those crowns are going to end up at the feet of Jesus. And no matter how faithfully we were able to run our race on earth, none of that is going to matter in that moment. We're just going to give it all to him. all, All glory, all honor is his. But I don't think that James is talking about that kind of crown here. I think that what he's talking about when it says crown of life, it's talking about the crown of eternal life. In fact, that phrase is literally translated crown that is life. He's talking about the eternal life that's bestowed on those who are faithful to the end. You you say, well, if you're paying attention right now, maybe you go, wait a second. There's a crown of life that's going to be bestowed of eternal life, of living in the new heavens and the new earth. In a place free of the corruption of this world, free from the power of the sin in this world, free from the presence of sin in this world. And that's going to be bestowed on those who endure to the end. That sounds like work salvation. That's the reason why people have criticized the book of James. That's the reason why the Catholic church loves the book of James. Because if you don't pay attention, if you don't really spend time studying this along with the rest of scripture, you'll begin to get the impression that James is telling you if you get the right amount of faith with the right amount of good works in your life and all that combines together the right way, you may get to the end of your life and God may let you into heaven. That's not what James teaches. James would listen to what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter two, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. He would amen that. James would just make sure we understand. Yes, it's salvation by grace through Salvation by grace through faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It's proven out to a life that's of endurance, of perseverance. And what he's saying is authentic faith that is real is faith that endures, that endures through trial, that endures through seasons of tribulation and persecution. And now, if you're paying attention, that may sound scary to you. Because you may be going, well, how do I know I'll endure to the end? How do I I know this is descriptive of me? 
How can I have some assurance of my salvation? How do I know that I'm going to get the crown of life at the end of life? Well, first I'd say this. You need to swim around in a lot of Paul's letters. In the truth that God gives us there. Listen, you need to trust God's promises. You need to be confident that the God who saved you. You had nothing to do with your salvation. He raised your dead soul up out of the grave. A dead person can't respond. A dead person can't walk. A dead person can't go and approach God. He came to you. He raised you up to new life. He's the God of your salvation. He's the God of your sanctification. He's the God who's going to keep you safe. You need to trust his promises there. But if you're looking for an indicator light to give you some assurance this morning that you have an authentic faith that will endure to the end. I think this is encouraging. Look at the end of that verse. He says, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to who? Those who what? Love him. God has promised to those who love him. How does James define an all-in faithful believer who will endure to the end? He says, those who love him. In your heart, deep down, you may have had a bad week. You may have dropped the ball. You may have some some seasons of running from God in this last year. But let me ask you this morning, do you love him? Is there a desire in you to run back to him? Do you have a passion in your life, a, a deep desire to live your life? Conforming more to the image of him? In your trial, is that not the question? Do you still love him? If it's all stripped away, do you love him? The faithful love him. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what kind of heartache my life runs into, what kind of trials I meet, I can't stop loving him. Love may not always be perfect. I wander. Listen, but, but we keep enduring. We keep coming back to him. We keep praising him in the storm. And that is gloriously confusing and attractive to a watching lost world because they're going to look at your life and go, what's up with that stubborn devotion? You still love this Jesus? Look at your life. That's what the world looked at Job and thought. That's what the world looked at the disciples and thought. That's what the world looked at those early followers of God in the early church who were marching on their way to be in the middle of the Colosseum, to be consumed by lines, knowing that they were going to their grave. And yet smiled and sang hymns along the way. How do you still stay stubbornly devoted to this king? When everything's going wrong in your life, you say, well, I just can't stop loving him. Because I know what he did for me. And I can't get over it. Because I know what's waiting on me and I can't wait to experience it. And so I I can endure because I love him. I can endure because I know how much he loves me. And the love that I have for him keeps bubbling up more and more as I think about what he endured for me. He endured the trial that I could not endure. Hebrews 12, 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at what Jesus has endured for us. You want to talk about perseverance with his mind set on the reward of redeeming sinners and reconciling sinners to the heavenly father. He withstood all of hell. He went under something that would have crushed us. He put himself on that cross in our place while God sent down the nuclear bomb of God's wrath on his life. And he gave us his enduring spirit and he's interceding for us at the right hand of the father. And he's poured out the power of his spirit into our life to help us endure. And he promises that he's working all things together for good. And he promises that he's going to prepare a place for us. That's my king. I can't stop loving him. If you know him, you can't stop loving him. That's why even through the toils and the snares and the trials, we'll keep walking faithfully through the fire. 
knowing that one day we'll cross the finish line and our faith will become sight and we'll be crowned with the crown, which is life. And in that moment, here's what my eyes and my heart is set on. There will be a bliss that will fill my soul in that moment when we step across the finish line and I'll look back across all the things that we had to go through and you'll say it it was worth it. It was worth it. And we'll get to spend eternity worshiping the king that we love. And until that day, here's the message this morning, church. Until that day, in this next year, let's endure each trial with faithfulness. Let's seek to count it all joy. Let's pray for wisdom. Let's rally around the people of God. And let's let's live with the end in view. All right, let's pray.